Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? You're in luck because we just upgraded our job board and we're here to help you out. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs where you can browse listings, post your own jobs, and sign up for email updates when new job listings are posted. This week on the job board, Design B&B is looking for a senior project designer in Chicago, Illinois. Constructive is looking for a senior UX designer. This is a remote position. Coforma is looking for a senior software engineer. This is a remote position. And American Express is looking for a product manager in the United States. Posting to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs starts at just $99, way less than many other design job boards out there. And for an additional fee, you can have your listing advertised here on the podcast and reach tens of thousands of listeners. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. Oh, and while you're there, check out the 10th Collective by clicking on the Talent tab. More on that later. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. I've got a huge announcement. This is something that I've been wanting to do on Revision Path for years now, and we finally, finally got around to it. We have upgraded our job board. Now, the job board has been around for, I think, a little over five years now. And trust me, it was definitely time to improve a few things. Many of you have written to me. We've heard everything and we've put so much into this new job board. I really hope you check it out. One of the big things we did was we moved it off of WordPress to an entirely new platform. And it even has its own dedicated URL, revisionpathjobs.com. Don't worry, if you go to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs, that still works. It'll just redirect you to the new job board. So you'll hear more about that in the weeks to come. For job seekers, you can create your own profile and you can filter jobs based on your preferences, not to mention sign up for email updates of new job listings as they're posted. For companies, you've got access to an all new job builder wizard. I know many of you have wanted this. You can include more detailed information about your job postings like experience level, job type, multiple locations, salary range, and a whole lot more. I'm super excited about it, and the new job platform is tied to another initiative coming soon that is called the Tent Collective, and that's something that we're doing as part of our partnership with State of Black Design. You might have heard a little bit about it already on social media, so keep your eyes and ears ready for news on that pretty soon. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. You know, when we wanted to move the job board off of WordPress and have its own like specific platform, the first thing I did was go right to Hover and buy a new domain name. It was super simple. And trust me, you want to show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about. And you can do that with Hover. 
With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Now for this week's interview, I'm talking with designer, art director, and community builder, Rebecca Brooker. Now we had a long conversation, so instead of giving you one huge supersized episode, we're going to do part one of our talk this week, and then I will do part two to close out the month next week. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, Maurice. I'm Rebecca. I am a queer graphic designer and art director from Trinidad and Tobago, and I'm currently living in Buenos Aires, Argentina. You know, I have been trying to get someone in South America on the show for years. So you are the first (laughs) Black designer in South America that I've had on the show. So I'm really excited about that. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. I'm excited. I mean, it's actually kind of funny because I feel like you don't see that many Black designers in South America. First, like in Argentina, at least, Uh, maybe in some of the more northern territories, maybe. But in Argentina, I feel like you rarely get to meet other Black designers. And I'm not even from here, so even doubly so. Mm. How has uh, 2022 been going for you so far? It's been going well for me. It's been definitely been a year of hustle. I have been grinding, kind of like working towards a few dreams and really just trying to like figure out where I want to set myself up for the next couple of years. I have like a few really good gigs going on and trying to figure out like, is this a hustle year and heads down and just do some work. And then next year can be a relaxing year. But 2022 has been very positive so far. Are you seeing any kind of big changes this year from last year? Yeah, I think one of the biggest changes is is just my personal like confidence and value, really, I feel like for the past few years, and, and throughout the pandemic, I was really trying to figure out like, where I wanted to spend my time, spend my energy? Is it in my in my organization? Is it in my job? Is it in something else? So I would say that I've like the biggest shift has just been in like that decision making of what I want to do, and how I'm going to move forward with the things on my plate. Now, I definitely want to talk about Queer Design Club, which I I think most Mm -hmm. people that are listening to this know you from. But before that, I want to ask you about your current gig right now. You're the art director at Ghost Note Agency. Can you uh, tell me about that? Yeah. So Ghost Note is a Black-owned agency based in Washington, D.C. And I met them about a year ago because their creative director, Veronica Corso Ducart, is actually in Queer Design Club. So at the time, I was working at a different agency, and Veronica had posted in our jobs posting channel and had said, like, oh, this amazing Black-owned agency that I'm running is uh, the creative team at is looking for a a senior designer to join the team. And I thought to myself, oh, damn, like, that sounds like a cool opportunity. I, I, I looked at their work, and I was like, oh, this is sick. And so I messaged Veronica being like, hey, like Veronica and I had probably had like a digital coffee uh, once before and we we were acquaintances, but I messaged them just being like, hey, would love to learn more about Ghost Note. And uh, they were like, let's hop in an informational with some of the team. And when I went into that first interview with them, it was just amazing. Like the energy in the room, the vibe, just like it felt different to any of the other agencies I was working at. And I had been at the time working at Media Monks, which is a huge agency that was just a very different culture. So 
it wasn't until I had that first interview at Ghost Note that I, the potential of going to a different agency entered my mind. And I was kind of like, oh, wow, this is a really different vibe. It's a lot cozier. It's a lot like mm. it, they seem to be growing rapidly. And for the first time, it's like a place that I feel like really like you could bring your culture to. One of the things like when like the reason I said what I said in the beginning about black designers being in Argentina is because when I moved to Argentina, I felt like the work environment that I was in was very homogenous. The majority of people in Argentina are white and I wasn't working with other like probably just a handful of other people of color in an agency of hundreds. So I was mm. finding it really hard to find diversity and find any semblance of culture. And along comes Ghost Note, which was just the complete opposite. You know, they were all about the culture, which, which I thought was great. I did an, inter an initial interview with them for that role, the senior designer. Veronica said to me privately after this, said, you know, I think you were great, but you should be applying for an art director role. And we're going to open one up for, for like, if you're interested. Mm. And I said, what? Like, you're going to... <laughs> I didn't even start working here. Y'all gonna give me a raise? Damn. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so that was kind of, I had a second interview and I met more of the team. I met the partners. I met the people who were working there at the time. And everyone was just very chill. The day after the interview, Veronica phoned me and said, you know, I just want to let you know you got the job. And I was just like, this happened over like three days, Maurice. It was so wow. fast. And I was just, you know, my job was on the floor because I wasn't even really thinking about leaving my job. Mm -hmm. But now I was really thinking about it because I was like, oh, the opportunity is in front of me. Okay. Okay. So that was how Ghost Note came around. And I, I've been there for the past year. They've gone through incredible growth themselves. Uh, the partners are three Black friends that they have been friends since childhood. Like they have baby pictures together. Oh, wow. So they grew up together in DC and all went on to three different life paths and then later in life reunited to start this agency. And they've been around for almost 10 years now doing this work. So it feels really great for the agency to be in a spot where they can really see their growth. We're getting a lot of bigger clients. Most recently, they actually announced a strategic partnership with Godfrey Dadich Partners, which is, uh, I don't know if you know that agency, but They've aligned with that and entered the Q collective of companies, which I think mm. really turned a new chapter for the agency as well, just in, in the potential that, that we have to create outstanding work. So it's been really great to work with people that are like me and people that, you know, our entire creative team is queer led, which mm -hmm. I think is amazing. We're majority people of color on staff. And it's just been a, a total 180 of what I was used to. So I've been really enjoying my experience there. I like that you refer to it as cozy. You really, you often mm. don't hear that word when people talk about their work experience. Mm. Yeah. I always stray away from using the, the term like, oh, my coworkers are my family because I don't like to think that way. But yeah, this is one of the first jobs that I would say where I feel really close and like a real bond of friendship more than any other place that I've worked with the team that we have now. And I think it's because we all are striving towards like this goal of we want to work at Ghost Note because we believe we have a unique voice and, and mm -hmm. a voice that not a lot of agencies get to have. So I feel like we all are kind of bonding by this experience of like, what is the Ghost Note lens? What is the Ghost Note angle? Like they're hiring Ghost Note because we have a different perspective and, and we can talk about the topics and things that 
other people can't. Yeah. And I think that just brings a level of like genuineness and authenticity to the people that work there. And I feel like we're, we're trying to build a culture that's really rooted in like our humanity and not necessarily just in, can we make cool stuff? Can we get the biggest clients? Like we want to do that stuff too, but it's really more about like bringing our humanness to the work. Yeah. I mean, it's a superpower really, you know, to be able to bring that perspective mm -hmm. to the work. Yeah, I, I definitely see it. And I think that we're smart in the way that they don't necessarily build themselves as a, as like a social justice agency. It's not about that at all, mm -hmm. but it's really about using our collective voice and this, this unique voice that we've crafted to be able to create impactful work that benefits other people. For example, one of the recent projects, actually my, my first project in Ghost Note was actually rebranding the Smithsonian's Anacostia Community Museum in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've ever been there, but ACM is actually the United States' first community museum. It was the first one that was ever established. And it's one of the only museums, I think, to be, if not the only, to be founded in a historically Black neighborhood of Anacostia, Washington, D.C. Oh, wow. So, when I was first put on this project, I had never heard of ACM. You know, you hear about all the other museums in the Smithsonian's collection, but <laughs> never ACM. And it was a really unique challenge because it's not in Washington, D.C. itself. It's not on like Capitol Hill on the museum route with the rest of the Smithsonian museums. It's kind of out of the way and it's a different type of work that they're showing, right? They're always showing community-based work. So a lot of the pieces that we got to interact with were like actual historical documents from the community of Anacostia. So like the first baseball that was thrown on their uh, their community pitch, just like photos from families that lived there. And ACM has been around and was founded by John Kinnard, who had a very unique vision for the, the town of Anacostia. And it was just such a such a unique project to be able to really meld all of that history and all of that like deeply rooted culture of, of Black history too, and work on that with a Black team. The strategist that I worked with, uh, Georgia Rima, who also works at Ghost Note, both of us really had to put heads down and say, how can we really bring the story and the history and all of these years of deep rooted community value into the work how do we turn that into brand equity for acm yeah and that felt like a really unique project that i don't know if i would be able to do with everybody so i really appreciated kind of like just having people who understood georgie actually like at the same time was moving to anacostia so it felt really personal for her i think that it was just that ghost note gets unique opportunities like that because we have that unique skill superpower as you put it to create impact where not every agency could. Right. And I think it's also about the fact that, you know, the culture really makes the work personal to the people that are working on it in a way that it probably mm -hmm. wouldn't with any other type of agency. So that's amazing. I did hear about the the investment recently from Godfrey Dadich. I actually, I've heard about them. So I have a sort of a, I guess it's a funny story. I don't know. I ran across them... <laughs> How many years ago was this? This was back when I was working at Glitch. So this was back in 2019. Yeah, this was 2019. And we were looking at studios because we were building this like lifestyle vertical website or whatever. And I remember I had reached out to them. I reached out to like a few places like them, Pentagram, 
Alley, a couple of others, just to kind of get quotes and just kind of see what might be available. I remember they had hit me back because they were like, oh, my God, Jabari's Cherry, we've heard of you from Revision Path. I was like, OK, yeah, yeah, that's great. But I'm really kind of interested in like this quote. And they mentioned that they had recently done, I think, creative work for Abstract, which is the, mm-hmm. the series on mm-hmm. Netflix where they yeah. do like it's like documentary Design. episodes of designers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, it was so funny because this was before the second season came out. And the person there was like, you know, we're about to have the second season come out. And and she was like, and you'll be surprised about this. We're featuring two black designers this season. And I'm like, oh, wow. wow. <laughs> like, that's amazing. Okay. Like telling me, I mean, I don't know. I thought that was a, a weird thing to kind of relate to me. Like I would be impressed by that, but I'm like, yeah. wow, you talked to two design, two black designers. Really? That's right. great. <laughs> yeah. So I, I also hadn't really known a ton about Godfrey Dadich uh, before the investment. I heard their name in passing, maybe seen a few things uh, that, that they produced here or there. And I think abstract is one of the the more notable things that they are produced for. But that's such a wild thing to say. I can't believe that. Yeah. So like with, with the agency joining the Q Collective, like has that impacted your day-to-day work in any sort of way? Not yet. I think that it's still... So they only made the announcement of the, the investment and the joining a couple months ago, I think like in April or yeah, early April. So it hasn't affected my day-to-day yet. We actually are, are still, I think, figuring out how best we integrate. But Q recently, actually this week, held kind of this like internal collective conference that brought all of their agencies together. So I attended a couple sessions and got to meet a couple people from other agencies, uh, SY Partners, Atelier, uh, Dell. And it was an it was an interesting experience. They had like in the one of the main sessions that I went to, they had like over three hundred people joining. So it was definitely a a big work group. And I think we're still new to the collective and trying to figure out what are some of the best ways that we could uh, work collaboratively or side by side or really like partner with some of the other minds in, in the Q Collective. I think that there's a lot of great companies and probably a lot of really smart people working at those companies. So I'm excited to see what happens. It's definitely kind of like an unknown path right now, I would say. Yeah. So what does like a a regular day look like for you? Like when work comes in, how do you sort of come in on projects as the art director? Like, talk to me about that. I feel like this is really beneficial information because before I started as an art director, I thought I knew what an art director did, (laughs) but I feel like we don't have enough resources out there to tell people exactly what the job is about. So I think this is a great combo. But basically my day-to-day really looks like I'm probably on about two to three projects at the same time depends on uh, how heavy those projects are. My role right now is kind of like half executional and half managerial. So I'm usually talking to clients, making decisions, but also working with the designers, uh, our senior designers and our mid-level designers to produce work for our campaigns. So for example, we are right now working on a couple campaigns for Nike Chicago. And I am leading the art direction. So I will put together the look, the feel, kind of talk with the client and understand from the brief what they're trying to convey. What assets do we have to work with? Is it a new design system that we need to make? Is it something that we're picking up from? And I basically get the work to a place where it is ready 
and executional for some of the other designers to take it into production. So a really great example of this is on this Nike project that we're working on, we're going to be producing some reels and stuff for uh, the Nike social handle on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And part of what I'm proposing to Nike is that we're going to create like a Giphy sticker pack on Instagram. So, you know, people can go search Nike Chicago and they get the stickers on Giphy and they put them on their stories or whatever. Mm -hmm. So my job will be, I will probably put together a deck along with some of my other ideas, pull some references of what those stickers will look like. And my job is to really sell that idea to the client before it gets produced so that the client buys into it. And I prep it for the team. We'll probably have a kickoff and say, okay, client loves this idea of the stickers. Let's put these into production. Maybe our senior designer, who is also an amazing illustrator, he'll help us draw some shapes. He'll help us draw some stuff. And, you know, maybe we pass it to a different designer who's going to add some typography to it. It really depends on the project. But my rule is usually a little bit higher level of a hybrid of client management and coming up with kind of the overall look and feel uh, of the work before handing it off to some of our other team members to bring it to life. What would you say is probably the most like challenging part about what you do? It's a great idea. I th- a question. I think one of the most challenging parts is really finding new inspiration all the time. I feel like sometimes when I'm working on multiple projects at the same time, Sometimes my ideas tend to blend together. So all three of those projects may end up looking similar. So I feel like finding inspiration and ways to keep things really distinct and unique in their look and feel of each campaign or each identity is a challenge because you constantly have to be looking at inspiration not just on the internet, but really all around you and in your world, right? Like I'm constantly thinking about How can I take some of the things I see in my everyday, whether it's like some graffiti on the street, whether it's like an old street sign, how can I take things that I see in real life and bring them into my project so I'm not just lost in this world of Pinterest and arena and and Behance and looking at what's already out there? Mm. Um, I think trying to keep your work original when you're working at, at like speed and scale is really difficult sometimes. And, and, it's easy to lean on the internet to just like see what else is out there. But I feel sometimes it could make the work all feel really homogenous. Yeah. So staying inspired is it's, it's always a challenge, you know? That's so interesting. You mentioned that I was just kind of talking about that a little bit with where I work now, we have a creative director and uh, one of the projects that we're working on, we have worked on for the past few months is creating a print magazine. So Mm -hmm. we're like, created a print magazine from scratch for the company, like coming up with the name, the brand, talking to printers. Like I sort of joked, like I feel like Khadijah James in the first season of living single, like trying to put flavor together. But (laughs) I mean, you know, wrangling contributors and stuff like that. And it's a quarterly magazine. So we have a little bit of breathing room in terms of, you know, going from issue to issue. But right now, like our first issue came out a couple of months ago we're currently in design on the second issue and we're starting planning on the third issue. And I've already kind of mapped out themes for the next like six issues. So like up until issue six, I've mapped out themes for that. And so even looking at that, it's like, we're looking at these covers and thinking 
well, do we want this to tell a story? Because even as we look at the themes itself, like so far, the themes are usually around propulsion. Like the first cover has a jet on it. The second cover, when people see it, it has like a city like rising up through the clouds. So I'm like, everything that we're doing here is not only about propulsion in some way, but also could tie into like a theme of discovery or exploration, which ties into sort of the theme of what we're trying to do with the tool. And so even as we look at that, because the company is named Orbit, and so there's like a lot of space imagery and terminology and things that we can pull from, this next issue that we're doing is all about Web3, which is a bit of a departure and just in terms of like, it's a very new topic. Well, I'd say it's a very buzzy topic. I don't know if it's necessarily super new, but it's a pretty buzzy topic because it's all wrapped up in like the metaverse and DAOs and cryptocurrency and blockchain and all that stuff. And it can be kind of confusing to just kind of think, well, how do we depict something like that? And so it's funny you say look at inspiration because we just did a working session recently and we're like looking at creative inspiration and Mm -hmm. we're like, we see this, this like octahedron symbol everywhere. And like, I want to use that in some kind of way. And I'm like, "Eh, I don't know. I don't think we should use that because it's used everywhere. And it turns out that it's actually the, the logo for Ethereum, which is why it's used so many places, because the person who came up with Web3 is also the founder of Ethereum. So it's kind of like a branding thing for them, at least. But the theme that I think we're going to settle on, we may change this by the time it actually goes to print, is actually going to be a uh, a retrospective from the 1920s to the 2020s in the theme of the movie Metropolis. And so it's going to be like about the, the I forget what the name of the android is in Metropolis. It's like the metal minch or something like that. Oh, I don't know. So it's going to be like a human, but we're going to have, well, we're taking inspiration from that. And we're also taking inspiration from RoboCop. So, wow. <laughs> so like it's going to have, <laughs> it's going to have reference. a helmet that's an Oculus helmet. It's going to have like a shoulder plate that's blockchain it's going to have another shoulder plate that's like so we're thinking of like as the person is whomever is on the internet because web3 is also kind of a very user-centered and so we're thinking of all these different aspects of what make up web3 coming onto a person as like an android kind of thing so it's interesting because yeah when we were trying to think of inspiration a lot of what we saw just all looked the same like oh everything's like purple and blue and there's the Ethereum logo. We want to do something different from that that kind of like stands out a bit. So trying to yeah, find an inspiration I, is tough. It's tough. And I think the the hard the the thing I've been struggling with lately is like when you work at an agency sometimes, and this is maybe what I miss about working in-house sometimes, but when you work at an agency, I feel like the the speed at which you have to produce ideas sometimes it's exhausting you know like every month is a different campaign maybe two campaigns and you're constantly like churning out ideas and then what happens when you can't be creative on demand what happens in that moment when everyone's like this is your sixth campaign this year and sorry but this idea sucks Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you're like yeah i'm tired and burnt out so like I think that's something that we're also just trying to, as an agency, as a world, I guess, I don't know if this is in other agencies as well, but I think we're just trying to find balance sometimes where we have some downtime to rest and recuperate and generate some new creative ideas. And then other times we're working really hard and producing at volume 
I think it's a balance of both things. And, and part of why I feel like we're in this moment of like the great burnout, where every like burnout is a buzzword and everyone is burning out. Everyone is over Zoom, over being on the computer eight hours a day. I think people are always just are right now just looking for some sense of balance in their life. And, and I think for designers, that can be draining when you have to wake up and produce a new idea every day, right? So that's something I've been noodling on for the past couple of months is just like, how do we continue to have jobs that require us to to exert creative energy while still being able to find a refill and like recuperation for that same creative energy, right? Mm-hmm. Is there an answer? Is there a solution? I don't know. I feel like it's all <laughs> <evil>. <laughs> capitalism. <laughs> yeah. I, look, but, I mean, it's it's hard to pour from an empty cup, you know? And yeah. especially with everything else that's going on in the world. I mean, political issues. We've had an ongoing, you know, global health crisis for the past two, almost three yeah. years. Like so many things have taken a toll just on people's psyche that like, mm-hmm. it's tough to always kind of try to come up with stuff, whether you're in a highly creative role, I think, or not, but certainly with like yeah. what you're saying, you know, as an art director, it probably is super tough to kind of always have to sort of pour from the well of imagination when the well is running right. dry. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's not just art directors. I mean, I'm, I feel like, you know, even as a creative strategist yourself, you probably could relate to that at some level where like just idea generators, I guess, have to constantly be figuring out a way to continue generating ideas or, or, or yeah. having thoughts about these things. And, you know, I think it, it touches everyone on some level. Uh, I don't think it makes my job any different from a creative director's job or a creative strategist's job. But I think generally it's, it's, a, it's a tough world out there to be creative right now in the midst of everything. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, let's kind of, you know, switch gears here a little bit and talk more okay. about your origin story. Like, I know you were born in, uh, in Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, tell me what it was like growing up there. Yeah, so I was born in Trinidad, uh, San Fernando, to be exact. And I lived in Trinidad until I was about 18, before I went to college uh, at, at St. John's University in New York. And, you know, I love Trinidad. I love my home. It, it's my people. I will always cape for them and always support like my people. But I think really early on when I began exploring my sexuality and just my awakening kind of reality that maybe I'm not like my friends, maybe I'm not straight and and I don't know what that means. And I think something that still hurts me to this day is just that there is not a lot of LGBTQ representation in the Caribbean. And and there's a culture mm. of homophobia and there's a culture of very religious based homophobia as well that I think really scarred me. I came out when I was 16 to my parents and my parents sent me to talk with a nun. And wow. at the time, you know, at the time, I I didn't have the words to describe that. I guess in 2022, we would probably describe that as conversion therapy to some extent. But, um, you know, I remember having this conversation with this nun and, and going for a couple of sessions. And one of the things this nun said to me was like, you are feeling this way, this way being gay because you're a child of divorce Mm. and i just like that that stuck with me all my life and it it always made me feel like as much as you are trini this place is maybe not for you and so it wasn't until i left trinidad 
and uh, went to New York that I felt this kind of like ability to own that part of my identity, right? And really like in a, in a culture and in a way that didn't feel harmful, it didn't feel unsafe. Mm-hmm. And so growing up in Trinidad as a, as a queer teen was tough for me. I felt like I had to fit in a lot. I felt like I had to wear dresses and wear heels and kind of like flat iron my hair and, and do my nails, and my makeup. And it all felt like I was just doing this to be friends with my friends. And I think now, years later, I don't feel like any relationship to that part of my identity anymore. Mm. This part of myself that needs to present in a more feminine way or be more ladylike to be loved by my people. And I think it's it's taken me living outside of Trinidad for, for 10 years to really come to terms with that, that yeah. acceptance that this is a place that made me feel a little bit small in, in who I could be. So that is always something that has stuck with me. I, I would love to return home one day and really like find a way or find resources to change that mentality. I have a lot of friends in Trinidad who are doing work to create a space for LGBTQ people. And I, I want to be able to contribute to that work in the future, because I do think it's important for people to feel safe when they're growing up and feel like they can explore who they are and be themselves um, and not feel like whether religious or not, that they're going to get judged. So, yeah, that was kind of one of the major reasons that I wanted to leave home. I, I think it's really important to this point you mentioned about, like you had to leave in order to sort of see the rest of the world and kind of experience who you are outside of the confines of like being in a, not just, I would say a small town, but also just a very kind of closed minded environment overall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's not just a Trinidad problem either. It's, it's really a Caribbean <laughs> culture problem. I would say like, I know other Caribbean countries also have large percentages of homophobia. Like Jamaica is, rampant with homophobia you know you hear it in dance hall you hear it in in the music you hear it mm-hmm. in, in all different places it's, it's almost casual to be homophobic people joke about it right yeah so i think that there, it's a huge culture shift that we have to make as a as a society and as a people to be more accepting and it's funny because there are a lot of like there are a lot of cultural ties to trinidad that are like inherently queer it's so funny how we're like selective in the way that we see it. I feel like there are just a lot of different spaces where it's more okay than it's not okay. And then it's like, it's okay in the way that we want you to be. So it, it just feels like a culture that is accepting when it's entertainment, but not when it's your real life. Like yeah. you could go up on that, you could go up on that stage and you could dress, you could cross dress, you could sing about it, you could do what you want. We'll laugh, we'll dance. Okay, great. You're a great performer. But if you went on that stage and actually brought your partner, no, you know? So I feel like it's very much a culture of where you have to present a certain way, you have to act a certain way, you keep your business private. That's how you survive. And that's tough. I don't think any LGBTQ identifying people, anybody who feels like they can't be who they are should not have to live that way. Wow. So much of that, as you mentioned, just reminds me of... Like, I mean, I grew up in a small town. I grew up in Selma, Alabama. And, you know, kind of to that point that you mentioned about how queer people are are celebrated when there's like a certain presentational aspect to it in a way. I remember in high school, we had gay men in high school and one of them was our head majorette. 
ironically. One was, he was, I think, in the class above me. He, he and he and his sister, well, sorry, me and his sister were in the same class, and he was a class above me, but he also wore a lot of women's clothes to school. And I can't presume to know kind of what their individual experiences might have been like outside of school, but I know when they were at school, they were always kind of celebrated because of that, like, it almost in a way sort of felt like mocking i don't know but like mm, yeah like for example the guy who was the the head majorette like had his own suit made and everything that was just like the suit that the girls had and like nobody right. at least from what i could tell nobody said anything but then i don't know i wasn't close to that person so i don't know like what other sorts of discrimination or things they might have received but like to be in that small town and to try to express yourself in that way i can't imagine like how just like stifling and confining that can be and you have to break out eventually you have to you have to and i think that was one of like i said one of the things that i'm so grateful for is the opportunity to break out you know i I have so many friends in trinidad who do i doubt and identify as lgbtq but don't have like one the privilege or two the resources to get out of that situation too right And, and i think that's an important thing to acknowledge here is that like I feel like I got to to embrace and explore that part of my identity because I was given this opportunity to leave the country and travel the world and, and find myself and not feel unsafe with presenting the way I want to present. Mm. But there's so many people in Trinidad who don't have that same opportunity, right? Like I have a really dear friend of mine who I grew up with, know, know their family. They are super religious. And for years, this person has been telling me secretly, like, I'm queer, I'm actually trans, and I want to identify this way, but I live at home and I can't do that. I can't dress the way I want to. When my parents go out, I try on different clothes. And it, and it just like reinforces this culture that like not everybody has that opportunity. So that is part of why I feel really moved to find ways that I can contribute or ways that I can change the narrative about what queer Caribbean culture is. Because it's important that we redefine the cult, the, the context of what queer Caribbean culture is. Mm-hmm. It's always been so tied to God and like you're going down the wrong path and God doesn't like that. And, you know, why do you want to change your body when God gave you this, this, this beautiful hair and, and this beautiful feminine body? Why do you want to identify as a man? And it's yeah. always been, a, it's, it's never come from a perspective of, this is not a choice that I'm making. My my identity is not a choice. I'm not choosing to wake up today and say, I've decided I like girls or mm-hmm. I've decided I like boys, right? It's it's kind of something that you come to that discovery, right? You, it really is like it's, it's there all along. And whether you choose to acknowledge it or not, it's who we are. It's, it's something that we're born with. So I feel that in, in the Caribbean, there's always been a sense of, homophobia is equivalent with the devil is equivalent with breaking the law of god and it's never been looked at from a perspective of this is a biological thing that Mm -hmm. is present in all living beings to some extent yeah so i feel like it's just a huge culture shift that we still have to make like i said i think that's something that that we have to accept and work on as a community, not just the queer people, right? But like we need allies and we need people coming together to be able to advocate for those rights. Let's talk about 
St. John's University. You mentioned moving away from Trinidad, going to St. John's in New York City, and you studied graphic design there. Mm-hmm. Tell me like what your time was like there, because I, I would imagine from the from the environment that you just described, <laughs> going to New York City was like a complete culture shock. Exactly. Yeah, it, it was. So context, people are probably like, if she's so against religion, why did she go to a Catholic university? <laughs> well, <laughs> I can tell you a couple of things about that. So I went to Catholic school all my life, actually, from primary school to secondary school. And when I was applying to universities, I had actually coincidentally visited St. John's a couple of years before at a conference that I was attending in the States. And uh, this wasn't my first time in New York, either my, my grandmother at the time was living in New York. So I, I was always traveling between Trinidad and New York to kind of visit and, and it was fairly familiar with the city. But when I was applying to universities, I applied to St. John's just because it was one of the only US college campuses that I'd ever visited. And I was like, all right, I kind of know that place. Let me just apply and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other schools I applied to were like SCAD and other design schools because I was like, I need to go study design and I want to go do it at SCAD. I don't know what St. John's program is about. They have a graphic design program, but whatever. That's like a throwaway option. And St. John's coincidentally came back with a full, like almost a full tuition scholarship. They, on top of that, they were like, oh, you're Catholic. We're going to give you an extra scholarship for being Catholic. Oh. And I was like, damn for the first time (laughs) it came in handy right i was like okay so that was kind of how i ended up making the decision because while i did get into scad it was four times the price my parents were paying this out of pocket and it it just like the opportunity to go to st john's almost for free versus pay money that we definitely didn't have to go to to scad and uh possibly take out loans it just kind of like, it it didn't make sense in that way. So, you know, reluctantly, I chose St. John's, not knowing, I was kind of like, okay, I'm going to have to put my best foot forward, because I don't know what type of design program they have. Like, I've never heard anybody say, (laughs) I got a graphic design degree at St. John's, you know, they're known for law, Mm -hmm. they're known for all different other things. So I was a little bit skeptical. But like I said, it was a new opportunity. In Trinidad, we didn't have a ton of like tertiary education to pursue design. We had a field of like art that you could study, but there wasn't a huge design industry and there still isn't a huge design industry in Trinidad to to have made it worth staying there. So I knew that if I wanted to study design, I had to leave. And this is like, like sexuality aside, you know, I was just thinking about career wise, uh, how was I going to pursue design? And I had really even gotten into design in high school because had a cracked version of Photoshop on my computer and just started making like posters in high school. They asked me like, Oh, do you want to make our school yearbook? I was like, yeah, Maurice, I designed an entire yearbook in Photoshop. (laughs) They sent it to the printer printer, and the printer was like, we cannot print this file. Like you need to use InDesign. And I was like, I don't know what that is. I'm a graphic designer. <laughs> I use Photoshop. <laughs> and uh, the, the school ended up having to pay the printer to redesign the thing I had designed like in a printable way. <laughs> but I was so convinced. I was like, this is amazing. I'm a designer. I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And that was really where my, my inspiration started, just playing on, on Photoshop, like making posters, doing like design tutorials from the internet and teaching myself how to design. So. 
fast forward, I get into St. John's, start there. And I'm honestly like really surprised by the design program. Like I had no expectations, but the professors, it was a small program. There was like no more than like 20 of us in, mm-hmm. in, in the, in my classes. But some of the professors changed just what I thought I knew about graphic design. I knew nothing about graphic design. I was, here I was making my yearbook in Photoshop and, you know, you get into your first graphic design class and I realized I was like, oh, wow, I'm starting from scratch. I yeah. know nothing. That was an amazing feeling, you know, to be able to to go to school and have just the time and the, the ability to just play and do what you want and, and learn so much different techniques, learn from other people in class who are making cool stuff. It was just a, an eye-opening experience for me. And I feel like that was when I really fell in love with design, was when I started really learning it and learning the concepts, learning how to not just like make something, but how to like really bring an idea to life, like to think about something and then bring, like think about a concept and to then bring that to life through design mm-hmm. blew my mind. <laughs> you know, it blew my mind in 20, 2013 when I started school yeah, that was my experience. I, I St. John's was four years, and I came out of it uh, with a ton of connections. You know, my professors were were working in the design industry in New York. We were always going to visit like different studios and and museums and galleries in the city. So I felt like being in New York really helped me to make like the industry connections and the network that I didn't know I was going to have. Yeah. And you were there like at the right time and in college, not just being sort of a fish out of water coming from another country to the States, but then also kind of relearning what you knew about design, what you thought you knew about design Mm -hmm. in this program. Like college is always kind of touted as a time where it's really transformative. But for you, it really sounds like it was a good starting point for you to build the career that you have now. Definitely, definitely. And and I think that was part of like, Something that always drove me in college was like, I think I knew that I didn't have another option, right? Like my backup plan was going back to Trinidad and really figuring out how would I be a designer in Trinidad when I don't know anything about design, I don't have any industry contacts, I don't I don't even know where to begin to do my own design thing, even as a freelancer. So I feel like it was really a transformational moment for me where I had to push myself to be some level of successful so that I could stand on my own two feet and I could make this career that I didn't, I I doubted myself, you know, I didn't even know if I could do. And I think that with that determination, that drive really is what gave me the confidence, Maurice, to kind of just like ask people anything, you know? (laughs) And so I think that was something that like, I feel like it comes across as outgoing, but I was always just so curious to why did you do that? Why did you make that decision? How did you meet that person? How could I meet that person? Yeah. What do they do? How how do you know them? Like, you know, is there an idea here? So I was just constantly hungry. And I think that hunger is really what led me to kind of getting my first job at, at BAM as an intern. Yeah, I see that after you, you graduated, you kind of worked as a curatorial assistant at a couple of art galleries and such. Yeah, so at the time, I had an on-campus job at St. John's in the in the student art gallery. And, that was, and I took that job because it was a unique opportunity, not just to learn about the art, 
But one of the things that one of the early assignments that I would do was design some of the vinyl and like design some of the material for an exhibition. So Mm. that was a lot of like, okay, we're going to do an exhibition. Let me design the wall text. Let me design the logo. Let me put together the postcards, the flyers, put these around the campus. So I took that job because I wanted some hands-on practice of like making stuff that wasn't just for my classes. And so I started at the art gallery at St. John's and I met a contact there, someone who came in once. And this guy was a friend of the curator at the time. And he said, oh, I have an art gallery in Bushwick. And I said, wow, do you need an intern? He said, yeah, why not? So I got this internship at uh, Outlet Gallery in Bushwick. And really, like, I became the curatorial assistant. It developed, it started just like, watch the gallery, talk about the work. If someone comes in, we have a new show coming up. Can you design the poster? Can you design the catalog? So I was getting a little bit of design experience, but I was also like really at this time, really into the art and just learning a lot about art. I felt like there was a lot of similarities between the art world and the design world, just in the way that you present ideas on a page. And so I spent a lot of time in my senior year of of college, really going to a lot of galleries and really immersing myself in learning a lot about the art world. And at one point had another doubting moment where I was like, damn, do I want to become a curator? I don't know. (laughs) And thought about that for a little bit. But art has always had something like a a special place in my heart. Um, And I think it's, it's, I get a lot of inspiration looking at art and finding ways to translate that into design. I think that the two have a lot of overlap. And it was something that I just really enjoyed looking at generally. So I did the curatorial assistant gig for uh, a couple of years, uh, both at the St. John's Gallery and the, the, the internship in Bushwick. And then I got this internship at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, which was kind of like the perfect melting of the two worlds, right? Like now I was working at BAM and I was actually designing the programming for some of the opera shows, some of the festivals and the, the, the programming that they would have at their venues. That was definitely the first job that I was working on a team with. And I was starting to learn the dynamic of being a designer in the design world, you know, and working with a creative director, working with other designers on the team. I was the intern and just learning how, like, even the process of working in a studio, you know, like, they're like, oh, we have all these softwares and I'm going to assign you a ticket and you're going (laughs) to change the status. And for the first time, I was like, oh, my God, this like... You don't just want to email me the file that you need. Like, damn, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that was really my first experience as well with formalized design in a professional sense outside of the classroom. And that was an incredible learning experience for me, just being able to work with some of the the best creatives. I think BAM was a great exercise in like finding ways to be creative in a design system. You know, they have a very tight design system that they use. And it was the first time I had to learn a design system. It was the first time I had to um, understand how to be creative within these constraints of the same logo, the same typeface, the same everything. Mm -hmm. And I felt like that just unlocked a whole new world for me. So, yeah, I I worked there. Unfortunately, at this time, I was on... um, I was starting to think about my my post student visa status and I had to get a job that would sponsor me a work visa. Mm. So after talking to my boss at BAM, you know, he said, We're a nonprofit. I don't think we're gonna be able to sponsor your work visa. 
I have a friend who runs a team at this company called Compass, and they're hiring a lot of designers. They're growing really fast. Why don't I send you a portfolio? So I said, sounds good. Like, do it. And he sent it over. The guy from Compass called me and he said, I'd love to bring you in for an interview. I met with them. The recruiter that I met there was actually Trini. And she was like, oh, no, this is a great place to work. I was like, oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I'll work there. <laughs> and surprisingly, they gave me an offer. So I worked at Compass and things were going really well. That was kind of a huge switch because I was at a nonprofit where like budgets were tight. And then I went into this new startup tech company, beautiful building on Fifth Avenue, like overlooking the city. It was just like a different world. And I was, again, like a fish out of water. You know, I was just like, not sure what to do and going along with it. But it was Mm -hmm. a great paying job. It was a, a bunch of new contacts. And the design work was pretty cool. So I worked at Compass for a year and they agreed to do my work visa. We got that in place and started moving in about July of 2018. You know, I hadn't heard back about my work visa status and a friend of mine at Compass actually, who we applied at the same time, she had come over to my desk and was like, oh, I got my acceptance of of my H-1B. Did you get yours? And I was like, no, didn't get mine at all yet. Mm -hmm. And she said, oh, I'm I'm sure it's going to come. I'm sure it's going to come. So I email my manager, I email the lawyers that are handling the case, and I don't hear back for about two weeks. They come back and they say, unfortunately, your application like wasn't picked in the H-1B lottery, and you have three weeks to leave the country. Whoa. And I, and I said, wait a minute, but like usually when you get the denial, you have 60 days to leave the country. Why is it three weeks? And they said, oh, I'm sorry, we forgot to inform you earlier that your application had been denied. So there was all this time that was just lost between the the time of the the notice and the time I was notified that I could have been like preparing to leave the country. By the time I got the news, they were like, you basically have three weeks left. You have to leave by the end of August. Wow. And I was like, oh my God. Like that was my whole life turned upside down, Maurice. Like the next day Compass was like, you're no longer employed here because now that we found out your H-1B is denied, you have to stop working. Damn. I, I, I had just signed a, a new lease a couple months ago with my partner and, uh, and another roommate. So I was like, I'm on the hook for at least another eight months on this lease. Just a lot of, you know, a lot of big life changes. I was like, okay, so I have to go back to Trinidad. What am I going to do? I have like five, $4,000, $5,000 saved in total. I don't know what that's going to get me in in this next life, but we're going to find out. (laughs) And so I left the States. I went back home to Trinidad. My parents at the time were actually on vacation in Europe. And must have been like two or three weeks, maybe a month after I got back to Trinidad, my old boss at Compass called me and he said, hey, I want to let you know we're about to sign a deal with this agency in Buenos Aires. And they need a designer who knows our brand to go down there and help them build a team of like 15 production designers. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, so you're saying I should go do the job? And they were like, yeah, we, we put your name in to go do that. And they're going to call you. And I was like, all right. And so said, so done, you know, just a really lucky break and a, and a real opportunity where my boss from Compass, shout out Jeff Lai really put he threw my name in the hat and 
you know, I was still just one year working there. There were people working at the company years who could have probably done done that job. But I, he took a chance on me, proposing me for that gig, and I ended up getting the job. So that was the thing that moved me to Argentina at the end of 2018 was this new opportunity with Media Monks to help them build a team of designers for Compass in Buenos Aires and uh, help lead that team to understand the brand. Big, big thanks to Rebecca Brooker. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Don't forget next week, we're going to have part two of our conversation. So tune in for that. In the meantime, you can find out more about Rebecca and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts provided by Brevity and Wit. This episode of Revision Path is also brought to you by Hover. You know, building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? We'd love to hear from you on social media, so please hit us up. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, like all one word. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, on Amazon Music, or on Spotify. We actually have not had a review in a long time, and I miss getting those five-star reviews and reading them on the show. So if you're listening and you've never left a review, go leave a review. It costs you nothing. It makes my day. It's great. Just do it. Do it for me. Do it for me. Okay. <laughs> because, you know, the more people that you tell about the show, the bigger we become and the further we can extend our reach to talk to black designers, developers, artists, and other digital creatives from all over the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>